I want to begin with a question as we come to read from God's word. When you go through challenging seasons in your life, what sustains you? What gives you comfort? What gives you hope? Think for a moment about the last big thing that you went through that was really difficult. How did you keep going through that period of time? What kept you going during that moment? Or maybe you're living in it right now. What hope? What is the hope that you're clinging to? What hope are you holding on to? Well, the reason I asked that question is because of the context of the book of Isaiah. When Isaiah the prophet prophesied, he prophesied between 740 BC and 680 BC. He had, he had a long span of prophesying. And that was immediately before the exile of the nation of Israel, and then slightly later, the exile of the land of Judah. So Isaiah prophesies, and what is coming in is exile for the people of God. They're about to be invaded by Assyria first, and then by Babylon, and be taken into exile as the people of God. They're about to go through an extremely challenging and difficult trial, and so these are the major themes of what Isaiah prophesies about throughout his book. He prophesies about why Israel is being taken into exile. And the answer is because of their sinfulness. Isaiah prophesies about whether the nations of Assyria and Babylon will be judged for their invasion and the evil and violence that they do. And the answer is yes, they will. And finally, when Isaiah prophesies, he says... Is there any comfort? Is there any hope? As we're invaded, as we're taken away from our land, do we have any hope or any comfort? That's the sort of question we'd be asking in those moments, isn't it? Lord, this is horrible. This is awful. This is the worst season challenge of life I've ever been through. Can I have any hope or any comfort? Well, as we think about that question, let's read Isaiah chapter 27 together. And it, oh, is there a PowerPoint? No, all right, okay, never mind. Um, so let's read Isaiah chapter 27 together. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it, I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it day and night. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots, and fill the whole world with fruit. Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, by exile you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces, 
No asherim or incense altars will remain standing. For the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. There the calf grazes, there it lies down and strips its branches. When its boughs are broken, when it, sorry, when its boughs are dry, they are broken. Women come and make a fire of them. For this is a people without discernment. Therefore, he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favour. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown. And those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. When Israel goes through exile, when we go through really challenging difficulties in our lives, where can we find comfort and hope? My answer from Isaiah chapter 27 is in who God is. Where can you find comfort and hope when you're going through challenging things in life in who God is? And according to Isaiah chapter 27, there are four answers to that question. Who is God? Who is God? According to Isaiah chapter 27. And so let's go through this passage and see who God is revealed to be in this wonderful chapter of God's word. Firstly, God is the sword wielding dragon slayer. Verse one says, in that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Our God is the sword-wielding dragon slayer. Now, there are one or two interpretations of that verse. It's possible that Isaiah is prophesying about the end of Israel's exile, and that Verse 1 speaks about three different nations who will all be defeated by God. It's possibly the Assyrians, the Babylonians and the Egyptians. That's one interpretation of 27 verse 1. That's speaking about three nations that will be conquered, who have conquered Israel but will be conquered by God. But I think this verse finds its ultimate fulfilment at the end of time. When God punishes and slays Satan and evil will be no more. Revelation 12 verse 9 says this about Satan. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. You can see, hopefully, how the descriptions in Isaiah 27 verse 1, that twisting serpent, that fleeing serpent, the dragon from the sea, correlate to that description of Satan in Revelation. In Revelation 12, Satan is described as a dragon. In Revelation 13, that dragon is associated with the sea because he gives authority to a beast in Revelation 13 who rises from the sea. Now, the sea has always been for Jews a symbol of chaos, destruction and evil. And so for me, the Leviathan in Isaiah verse 1 is an ancient sea monster representative of Satan and all his schemes. Not three different nations, but three descriptions of Satan. He's described as the fleeing serpent, the twisting serpent, 
and the dragon from the sea. I don't know how often you hear teaching about Satan in church, but it's important we know things about who he is. Satan was an angel of God who rebelled against God and therefore fell. He is the spiritual opponent of the Lord our God. But he is by no means equal to God. By no means equal. He has opposed God. He's rebelled against him. He perhaps thinks he is equal to God, but he is nowhere close. He isn't omnipresent. He isn't everywhere like God is. He isn't omniscient. He doesn't know all things like God knows all things. He certainly isn't omnipotent. He isn't all-powerful like God is all-powerful. In fact, Satan is subject to God and under God's authority. He can only do what God allows him to do. So in the book of Job, Satan has to ask God's permission to deal with Job. And God himself says, okay, I give you permission for that, but you must spare his life. So God instructs Satan and says, you can do so much, but you can only do what I am allowing you to do. In fact, just to see how much Satan is subject to God and how unequal this power struggle is, I just want to show you two verses in the Bible. They describe precisely the same events. The first verse is 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1. And that's what, this is what that verse says. Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So in Chronicles, Satan stands against Israel and works somehow in influencing David so he does something wrong. He, he, he goes and numbers Israel, which he wasn't supposed to do. But when you read the same story in the book of Samuel, 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, it says this. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go, number Israel and Judah. This is the same event but described in two different ways. Is there a contradiction here in the Bible? Is it Satan who incited David to count the people of Israel, or is it God who incited David to count the people of Israel? Well, the answer is that there is no contradiction. Satan acts thinking, I will get David to do something wrong, and I will achieve my purposes, and I will ruin the nation of Israel because I'm Satan, I'm clever, I'm smart, I'm going to incite David to do something wrong. But God, in his awesome, unrivaled authority, is using Satan for his own purposes. In this instance, this is God responding to the sin of Israel and using Satan to make David the king do, do something wrong so that he can inflict punishment upon his people, so he can teach them of their sin. Do you see? Even this, in this moment, where Satan thinks that he's getting the upper hand, he's subject to God and achieving God's purposes. The most famous example of Satan thinking he's getting the upper hand of God, but ultimately achieving God's purposes, is the crucifixion upon the cross. Jesus dies. Satan thinks I've won. And God goes, no, you haven't. He's died for the sins of the world. He will rise again in glory. And many will believe in him and enter into heaven. You have achieved my purposes. You, you have been involved in the salvation moment in history. 
So Satan is by no means omnipotent. He is subject to God. In Isaiah 21, uh, 27 verse 1, he's described as fleeing. He's like a fugitive. Satan is on the run. He has opposed the almighty God and he, know, he perhaps knows that his time is short, but he flees around the earth doing evil. He is a fugitive on the earth. He's also described as a twisting serpent. He's a deceiver, one who twists God's words. That is how he and his demons will seek to influence you if you are a Christian. He will seek to twist God's word in your head so that it says something different and lead you away from what God has actually said. That's what he does in Genesis chapter 3. Did God actually say that? I'm, I'm going to twist what God has actually said to you in order to lead you into sin. He might convince you that sinning will bring you joy and lasting contentment, but it won't. That's him twisting. That's him lying. He might convince you that God isn't good or that he doesn't love you, but that's not true. That's, that's lying. That's twisting the truth. So Christians... We need to be aware of Satan. We need to know of his existence. We need to know that he has his own angels. He has his demons in the world. We need to be prepared. We need to take every thought captive to Christ so that when Satan attempts to twist truth, we do not fall into that trap. But we also know that his power is, is not comparable to God's power. He is subject to God's power. Satan is also described here as the dragon from the sea, violent and the causer of chaos. Satan loves violence. He loves chaos. And no doubt there is demonic influence in part of every war that has ever, ever happened in history. There's been demonic influence, loving the violence, causing the chaos. So as you read Isaiah 27, you might think Satan sounds pretty formidable. He's a twister, he's a liar, he's a lover of violence. But of course the verse doesn't present Satan as formidable. This verse presents God as formidable. This verse is about God's supreme power. For God takes his sword and Isaiah runs out of adjectives for the sword. It's described as hard and great and strong. And Isaiah's like, what other words can I use to describe how awesome this sword is that God takes in his hand? He uses three adjectives. I'm sure he could use plenty more. And God takes this sword and punishes and slays Satan. In that day, there is a day where Satan will be defeated and evil will be destroyed. Satan's fleeing will be done. No more twisting truth. No more violence. No more chaos. The devil is thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur and burns eternally for his evil. On the verge of being invaded and conquered and going through horrible trial, this is the picture of God that Israel needed. This is the picture of God that you might need when you go through difficult circumstances, when you see evil around you, when you see evil in the world or you see evil around you, you need to know that God is the one who takes up his great sword and defeats evil forever. That day is coming and that hope will sustain you. Evil will be vanquished. Brothers and sisters, know this. One day God, the supreme swordsman, 
will bring an end to Satan and evil will be no more. Why does he wait? Why not now? Why not now? Well, one reason is that there are still people who are yet to believe in Jesus and he's waiting for them. He's patient for them. There are still people who belong to Satan's dominion of darkness, who flee, who, who love falsehood, who are involved in violence and chaos, and God waits for them to turn and believe in Christ. And so while we wait, remember that God will one day come. He is the dragon slayer that we are waiting for, and his promises are sure. He will one day come. God is the sword-wielding dragon slayer, according to Isaiah 27. He's also the gardener in verses 2 to 5. God is described as the keeper of a vineyard. You have this powerful, mighty, awesome picture of God with his sword that he deals with evil at the end of time forever, contrasted with this gentle picture of God, the gardener, in the midst of his vineyard. He says... His people are like a pleasant vineyard. It's the contrast just remarkable, isn't it? It's gone from one just powerful, awesome picture of God to here is God gardening in his pleasant vineyard. The Lord waters this vineyard at every moment. The vines, the plants are not lacking for water or food or provision or everything they need because God himself is on it. It's not like our back garden, which is a complete mess because we do not spend enough time out there gardening. Some of you will know people in the church who have lovely, wonderful gardens. In fact, I was with Brian and Jackie the other day. They have a beautiful garden. Like God is more like Brian and Jackie than me and Rachel when it comes to gardening. He looks after his beautiful, beautiful garden and pays attention to every single plant within it. It says night and day, he's there looking after this vineyard. He says he has no wrath on this vineyard. This is such an important point. God has furious wrath upon Satan and evil in verse 1. But in verse 4, when he's speaking of his people in this pleasant vineyard, God has no wrath in that place. Last week, Steve Norris preached to us about forgiveness and said, if you believe in Christ, you are completely forgiven in his sight. Well, this week, Isaiah 27 says, God has no wrath towards you if you have believed in Christ. Christ bore any wrath against anything you'd done wrong in himself upon the cross. And all God's wrath was poured out upon Christ. So when God looks at you, he has no wrath. No wrath. He's never angry with you. He never acts against you in anger. For he has no wrath upon you, for Christ bore it all in your place. When trials come, when something bad happens, Christians must never think God is angry with me. He isn't angry with you. He has no wrath. You are the apple of his eye. When he looks at you, he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. You are blameless. You are beloved child. Not angry, but delighted. He loves you. God never punishes his children in anger. Never. Never. 
at the end of time, in that day, life will really be like living in a pleasant vineyard. We will have everything we need. And I love verses 4 and 5. In verses 4 and 5, God says, If there were briars and thorns in my garden, I would go to war to protect you. I would take out those briars and thorns. I do not want anything to take you out in this garden. So if they were there in the garden, I would go. Some of you gardeners know how hard it is pulling out briars and thorns that are trying to choke your beautiful flowers. You get your gloves on and you go to war to pull out these weeds which are ruining the garden that you have created. Well, God is the same. If there were briars and thorns, he would go to war to protect you. But then a slightly different idea in verse 5. He, he, he talks about these weeds and these briars and these thorns. And he says, I'll burn them up. I'll, I'll rip them up and I'll burn them up. But then he says, unless, unless they make peace with me, Unless they come and believe in me. There's this sense, you can just see the heart of God. He loves to protect his people, but he's also open to these briars and thorns coming and being vines in his garden that he is creating. This is God's heart for the lost. Oh, that I would take them and replant them. And then I would water them and look after them and care for them and protect them. This is every Christian conversion story, by the way. I was once a thorn and a briar, opposed to God and opposed to God's people. No love for God, no love for his people. But then God took hold of me. He ripped me up and replanted me. And as he did that, I saw his love for me in Jesus Christ, who hung on a tree for me. He died for me. He was crucified for me that I might be forgiven. And I was replanted in this vineyard in which I now stand in his joy and forgiveness and everlasting life. And that's your story too. If you are a Christian, you were once a thorn or a briar, ruining the people of God, opposing the people of God. But God replanted you and made you part of his wonderful vineyard. He who I opposed... I asked for mercy from, and God heard my cry. So God is the dragon slayer who slays evil in the world. He's also the gardener who tends to us and seeks our protection. I'm going to come back to verse 6 at the end, but let's look at verses 7 to 11, where God is the one who disciplines his people for the sake of holiness. In verse 7, Isaiah writes, has he, that's God, struck them, that's Israel, as he struck those who struck them, that's foreign invaders like Assyria, Egypt and Babylon. Do you see? Has, that's the question. Has God afflicted Israel in the same way that he will strike Assyria and Babylon? The implication answer is no. He's talking about two categories of people here in this verse. When God deals with his people, Israel, when this was written, and now Christians, believers in Christ, his people, if you are a believer in Christ, you are one of his people. When God deals with his people, there is a purpose in affliction. And the purpose is shown in verse 9. Verse 9 says, Therefore by this the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin 
when he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces, no ashram or, in or incense altars will remain standing. Why has the exile happened? Why has affliction come upon God's people? There's a purpose, which is that sin would be taken out of the people of Israel, that the altars that worship foreign gods would be crushed to pieces and no longer stand. Do you see, God doesn't punish his people in anger, but he afflicts them in loving discipline so that they would grow into <coughs> holiness. And if you are a Christian, if you are a believer in Christ, you have been given eternal life, eternal life. So nothing that afflicts you in this life is God's wrath coming upon you, because as I've already mentioned, that fell upon Christ. But when affliction comes, this is the loving hand of God bringing discipline into your life in order that you grow to be more holy and more like Christ. This is what we need to know. Before we go into seasons of affliction, this is what we need to know, that this is not God's anger against me, although often there's things to learn. Often things do come into our lives because of sin, and we need to go, what is God teaching me because of this sin? But we need to know it's not his wrath, but his, it's his love and compassion that has brought these circumstances upon us so that we might become more holy, so that our idols might be brought down, so that sin will no more be in the land. God deals with non-Christians in a different way. Verse 10 describes a city becoming a wilderness. Verse 11 describes dry tree branches being cut off and burned on the fire. But for Israel and for Christians, suffering functions differently. It isn't wrathful punishment, but loving discipline so that sin would be taken away. Poverty teaches us to love God more than money. Illness teaches us that spiritual health is more important than physical health. Pain teaches us to long for the eternity when all things will be taken away. Afflictions come to teach us things. Rebukes from other Christians teach us to live more holy lives. Family breakdown teaches us to adore God the Father's love most of all. Suffering of others teaches us to love like Christ has loved us. The afflictions in your life right now, the struggles that you are a part of or see around you, they're part of God's love towards you because he wants you to grow to be more like Christ. God will use all things for the good of those who love him. Think of Joseph, the story last week. God, these brothers did something that was, that was evil and God used it for good. He uses all things for the good of those who love him. God is the dragon slayer who defeats evil. God is the gardener who waters and protects his people. God is the loving discipliner who teaches us through affliction. In verses 12 to 13, God is the gatherer. In that day, God brings the harvest, gathering all the people of God from every nation together to worship him. The trumpet blows and out of exile come God's people to worship on the holy mountain. Maybe the affliction you're going through is loneliness. A massive, massive thing. Know you're God your Father is always there for you in prayer. But also look to the gathering that will come at the end of time 
where you will be brought into a crowd. You'll be brought into a family and you'll gather with the people of God to worship on the holy mountain. You'll no longer know the affliction, but you'll be gathered with the people of God. And I hope you experience some of that in this church as we gather and worship God together. True family where we don't need to wear masks, but we can be who we really are together, bringing God glory. Because this, when we gather, is a picture of that one day on the holy mountain when all the tribes and nations and all the people of God gather together together to bring glory to God forever and loneliness and evil and death and pain will all be defeated. God gathers his people in Isaiah chapter 27. When you go through affliction and trials and difficulties, remember God is the dragon slayer. Remember he is the tender gardener. Remember that he is the one who lovingly disciplines his people. Remember that he is the gatherer who will one day gather all his people together But also remember Isaiah 27, verse 6. I think verse 6 has a different time period to the rest. All the other parts of this passage start in that day. But verse 6 says, in days to come. And I think verse 6 is a messianic verse, which began to be fulfilled at Christ's first coming and is being fulfilled in this very place right now. The Messiah, this is what verse 6 says, let me read it to you. In days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots, and fill the whole world with fruit. The Messiah, in the book of Isaiah, is described as the root of Jesse, Jesse was the father of King David. And in Revelation 22, verse 16, Jesus says, I am the root and the descendant of David, Jesse's son, the bright morning star. That's a funny thing to say. I'm the descendant and the root of a person. I'm the descendant. I come after David in human history. If you trace back my family tree, says Jesus, you will get to David, King David. He is one of my ancestors, so I come after him. I'm the descendant of David, says Jesus. But also, I came before. I was the root of Jesse. I am the root of David. Because I'm not just a man who was born in human history. I am the eternal son of God who has always existed. I am the root of Jesse and the descendant of David. That is who the Messiah is. But here in Isaiah 27 verse 6, Isaiah describes the root of Jacob, the root of Israel. Jacob was a man who was renamed Israel by God, by the way. Now, I'm about to open for you a whole theological box and not fully explain myself, but I I just want to open this box and then you can come to me afterwards and go, I didn't understand what you're talking about. Explain it to me properly. Here's the box. Jesus is the new and true Israel. Jesus is the new and true Israel. Matthew's gospel is shaped to show how Israel failed to be the obedient son of God on earth, but Christ succeeded. Israel failed 
but Christ succeeded. So one example of this is that Israel goes into Egypt and then is brought out of slavery in Egypt and goes through the, through the waters of the Red Sea into the wilderness and then eventually into the promised land. Well, when Christ comes, Matthew's gospel says that Jesus, Mary, Joseph and Jesus were taken into Egypt and then out of Egypt I called my son, quoting the prophet Hosea. So Jesus comes out of Egypt and then in his ministry he goes through the waters of baptism and then is driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness for 40 days, which correlates to the 40 years of Israel in the Old Testament. And so there's this whole narrative in Matthew, which I'm not fully explaining and trying to do quickly because I don't have time to fully explain it, which basically says that Jesus is the true Israel. He is the, he is the new Israel. And so what this verse is saying is when the Christ comes, when the true Israel comes, when the root of Jacob comes, finally healthy roots go down. And Israel, which has failed to live up to all that God would have for Israel, now Israel blossoms and shoots go up and branches come out from this vine that's been planted. Jesus is the root of Jesse, he is the root of Israel, the root of Jacob. He's also the vine that grows from these strong roots and we are the branches attached to this vine. These branches aren't just Israelites, but they're you and me. They're every spiritual descendant of Christ, everyone who's saved by grace through faith in Jesus. And they bear fruit all over the world. A root was planted in Israel and a shoot came up and a vine grew. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. And branches have gone out from that moment in history all over the world, bearing fruit for God's glory. And so right now, a percentage of the world is filled with fruit, but there will be a day where the whole world will be filled with spiritual fruit, giving glory to God. This is what Jesus says in John 15. I've no doubt that Jesus had Isaiah 27 in mind when he spoke in John chapter 15. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. You also see the discipline of God the Father in John 15 because the Father is the vine dresser who prunes the branches. He cuts back the branches so that they might bear even more fruit. He's the vine dresser and the gardener in John chapter 15. And in John 15, there's also warning about challenge and affliction for the disciples of Jesus. You read the story, this metaphor about the vine, and Jesus says, there are challenges coming. You need to be ready for it. So how will you have hope in times of affliction and challenge? The answer is in who God is. He is your hope. He is your comfort. And who is God? He's the dragon slayer who will defeat evil forever. He's the tender gardener who now and into eternity will give you all that you need and will protect you. He's the loving discipliner. He will use your challenges that you go through to prune you to remove sin in your life and help you bear the fruits of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and bring glory to God through all things. He's the gatherer. He's going to gather all nations and all Christians into one place to worship on the holy mountain. And if you're remembering that and you still think, I don't have any hope or any comfort, you're still struggling, then remember Christ. The vine the root of Jesse, the true Israel blossoming and putting out shoots and all over the world 
bearing fruit in the church, bringing glory to God forever and ever. Let's pray. And can the band come forward as well? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we worship you this morning as the sword-wielding dragon slayer. Evil is no match for you and will be defeated. We thank you for your patience, for your patience has enabled us to come into belief in Christ. But we know and we rejoice that one day Satan will be completely thrown into the fire of hell and burn forever. Evil will be defeated and will be no more. We praise you and thank you, Lord God, for your might and your power. Thank you that you are the tender gardener who waters and protects us and looks over us and, and loves to prune and to look after his people. And we do thank you for your discipline. We thank you that you use afflictions and difficulties for our good because you're such a wonderful God and we praise you and thank you and I pray you'd teach us. You would even maybe reveal to people's minds and hearts now, what, it, what is it that you're doing in my life, Lord God, right now? What are you teaching me? How? What are you taking off of me and what are you helping me bear fruit in, Lord God? Thank you that you discipline us. And I thank you that you are the gatherer, gatherer, that you will gather us to the holy mountain and we will praise you. You have gathered us as the church into this place of worship. We praise you and thank you. And Lord Jesus Christ, we worship you. You are the perfect one who came into the world, the root that was planted, the vine that thrived. And by your life, death and resurrection, we have been grafted into this great vine. Thank you for that spiritual connection to you, Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for us as a church and us as individuals. May we bear much fruit for your glory in this place as you fill the whole world with the fruit that brings you glory. Amen. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.